How do you create a successful and dynamic brand? One that doesn't revolve around just selling products. Welcome to Through the Line, the Agency Squared podcast with me, Andy Barjuri. In this episode, I aim to address those questions in my conversation with Dr. Emmanuel Probst as we explore some of the key elements of his new book, Assemblage, the Art and Science of Brand Transformation. We cover a range of subjects in the podcast from purpose, or as Dr. Emmanuel calls it, the post-purpose era that we're now in. We look at sustainability, we look at the creator and remix economy. We also explore direct-to-consumer DTC brands and what that means for our relationship with our consumers. If you're looking for some fresh ideas to help move your brand forward, I think you're in the right place. I hope you enjoy the show. Good afternoon, Emmanuel. How are you doing today? Andy, thank you so much for having me back on the show. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. And I am really pleased to have you back on the show. Having just read your latest book and enjoyed it enormously, it's great to have you here to talk a little bit about it. And I think you're in, there's a very, very few people have come back on for a second appearance. So uh, thank you for persisting with the podcast (laughs) well and thank you again for having me back (laughs) so this time we're talking about your book now i'm going to say this in a very english accent and i'm intrigued to see how you say it in your french accent because i think it'll sound better your way than mine (laughs) because i'm going to say assemblage which probably sounds horrible and you're going to say hopefully a little bit differently to me so one of the reasons why we picked this title is because it works in at least two languages. Assemblage is perfectly fine by me. Assemblage will be a more French pronunciation. But again, uh, the world works in at least two languages and is relevant in both. That's for sure. Ah, perfect. It, but it does sound better in the French accent, I have to say. And uh, reading the book, it was everything I expected from one of your books in that it is exceptionally well researched and referenced throughout. So I know that this is a book that you've really done your homework on, which is really, really useful. And as a, as a reader, I appreciate that. And I was trying to think about, you know, how am I going to summarize what this book's all about in a nutshell? And And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think what you're saying really is that it, it's It's about how do you curate and bring together different elements of the the marketing mix or uh, the brand promise to create opportunities to build relationships with your customers. So how do we curate all the things going on around our brand and use that as a way to... Yeah, I, I think you got it. I mean, the starting point is to say brands can no longer just sell products brands must also transform people and the world they live in. So brands need to make a greater impact than just selling products. And the second starting point is brands are no longer static. Brands are dynamic, meaning a brand is a process of co-creation between the audience and the brand and the market and the culture we live in. And that moves much faster than it used to. And Exactly as you said, Andy, so how do we create successful dynamic brands by assembling different attributes from culture and from personal and social perspectives? And this book shows you how. It does. It really does. And and I was trying to think about, you know, 
summing it up, I would probably say it's a sort of treasure chest of ideas of inspiration for the kind of things as a as a brand custodian you need to have a look at, to have a think about as you're building out strategy. You know, how do you move your brand forward in an age where everything has changed, but at the same time, nothing has changed. We still have the same expectations of brands, but perhaps they're heightened in some respects. And it, it will be lovely to go through the book in detail, but there's so much in there. I think we'd need a four-hour show to really do it justice. <laughs> so I just kind of picked out three of the things from me that really stood out and resonated. And I'd love to just riff on those a little bit, if that's okay. And then, Indeed. yeah, build a story around it. So I guess the first theme, or one of the themes that stood out for me was this idea that we're in a post-purpose world, I think, is the phrase that you use. In other words, consumers are no longer just interested in buying stuff from a brand. They actually want to have more relationships with it. And I think that 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 phrase, purpose, has been used an awful lot, hasn't it, in brand strategy over the last few years. So I was intrigued to really get your take on what a post-purpose era really looks like. Yeah, look, here's the deal. Purpose was... A buzzword started seven, ten years ago, especially when that book came out, Start With Why. Over time, what we saw is a bunch of brands jumping on the bandwagon and adopting purpose that did not necessarily align with their product or their history. And importantly, ultimately, those companies were not did not have the credibility to carry that purpose. Completely. So, yeah, so fast-tracking to today, well, some companies are built around purpose. And uh, in that regard, they do very well at delivering on that purpose. And for everyone else, well, they have to adopt a purpose that's credible, believable, that they can deliver upon that aligns with the identity of a company. Well, if not you should actually stay away from purpose. I don't think that all brands and all products must have this ambition to save the world. It's okay if you don't, and it's okay if you make toothpaste and bleach. You can do so in a responsible way and in a meaningful way. So what do people expect? They expect brands to not just claim a purpose, but to demonstrate this purpose and or they expect brands to make a positive impact on them as individuals or on their community, so people around them, or on society in general, that is the world at large. Mm. And I think that's what has really changed, is this expectations that brands should step in. And I think one of the examples you give is you talk about Microsoft and teaching technology skills to various communities. You know, it's clear that Microsoft is, its purpose is not to save the world. Its purpose is to make its shareholders a lot of money through technology. But that doesn't mean that it can't use the skills that it has to improve society at the same time. Well, exactly. See, I think that's a great example. Those educational programs from Microsoft or uh, the likes of Google, that is to educate both individuals and uh, entrepreneurs, small, medium businesses on how to use digital tools for business. Now, granted, at the back end of that, Microsoft is going to sell 
its software and hardware products. But that's completely fine because it aligns with the identity of the firm that is to create products that are innovative and helpful to show mm. people how to use those products to save time and improve their business and possibly improve their lives. So that's a great example of a mission that is very reasonable, that is somewhat expected from a firm like Microsoft or, or Google and very successful for them. Yeah, I completely agree. It works for them very nicely. Uh, and I'm, I'm quite pleased if, we, if we're talking about post-purpose because purpose has been that kind of poster child for a while, hasn't it? But it, not, it doesn't work for all brands. And in some cases where you've seen brands kind of retrofit purpose onto their very commercial organization, you wonder whether that was the right thing to do from a brand promise point of view or even in some cases a shareholder value perspective. That's right. Also, purpose always sounds very glamorous at conferences um, between two glasses of champagne. Uh, <laughs> however, when push comes to shove, are people willing to pay for purpose? And the answer is barely. Uh, will you pay a 5% premium or 7% premium for a company that's going to participate in a, a, a charity or uh, is going to give money back to the producers or what have you. Well, maybe you'll pay that small premium, but you're not going to pay 30% more for that same product just because it has some fancy tagline slapped on it. Yeah. So absolutely. that's my view and that's my experience. <laughs> mm -hmm. definitely a purpose cynic i think on the other end of the line here so that's great okay so that was the, the first one that piqued my or caught my attention the second piece i wanted to look at was the the creator and the remix economy i really like this theme in the book where you're talking about the fact that creating ideas or content has very much been democratized anybody can do this now and that's obviously changing the relationships we have with our customers, but also customers with their brands as well. Yeah, I mean, this book is optimistic. This book is to tell the reader, you can do it too, and I'm going to show you how. And um, this chapter you're referring to, Andy, is about the remix economy that is copy, transform, and combine. And in that chapter and in the book in general, we uncovered that most ideas, most products, most arts, most musics, most brands around us are not net new, if you will. They are indeed a combination of previous influences. And uh, this sheer process is not new either. Uh, the likes of uh, Michelangelo, and most recently in the arts, think of the likes of Jen Kuhl, Jeff Koons, I'm sorry, and Andy Warhol, uh, and Picasso himself, and the same reasoning applies in music, whether it's Pharrell Williams or DJ Khaled, and the same reasoning applies in branding and, and products. So it is to say that to create something great, you assemble from different influences and different products and very often you find success by repurposing a product towards a new application to fill a void or, again, creating a new product by gathering influences from other existing products. But at the end of the day, 
too many people, or should I say most people think that they have to reinvent the wheel to create a great brand, to create a great product, to create great advertising. Well, that's not the case. There is so much you have to learn from what has been done already, and it's completely fine to copy, transform, and combine what's around you. Everyone does it, and I exemplify this. Uh, that's how this book has been created, Assemblage, the Art and Science Transformation. That's the title. An assemblage is a metaphor from the winemaking business. That is, when you create a brandy or a bourbon or a whiskey, or a wine, or champagne, you do so by assembling a range, you pick and choose, if you will, from a range of different brandies, different grapes, different aging process, different methods to get to um, that grape. And as an outcome, that's how you create your brandy or your wine. So the title of the book is copy, transform, combine. That is a metaphor that I borrowed from the world of winemaking and adapted to the world of marketing. So I like that. So it's kind of evolution, not revolution. Sometimes we can bring things together, just iterate to, to improve. And I think, am I right or did I imagine this, that in the book you actually encourage people to reuse parts of the book to create their own thoughts or to build their own thinking on on transformation? Yeah, this book, again, is positive, optimistic, and I want it to be helpful. So I encourage people to steal as much as they can from this book because I don't have an ego that way. And what I mean by this is we create ideas because it's fulfilling and because I enjoy sharing this uh, knowledge and creativity with our community. And I think people should make these ideas theirs and while everyone all readers are busy stealing those ideas which again they should uh, i'm working on my next ideas for you excellent well that's good Uh, and the the third theme i wanted to particularly pick out and then i'll let you pick out your favorite parts of the book if you if you've if you've got any because there's tons in there is when we're talking about sustainability and upcycling and recycling and the the right to repair and you know designing out products failure i suppose and and that that feels like such an important and enormous subject in this day and age doesn't it even though in most lots of the world we're suffering from a cost of living crisis we still have this need to have good quality products and think about sustainability and all that sort of stuff How do you feel that that fits within that brand purpose context, or is it something completely different? Oh, it is very related. You're right. So we all need to be more conscious about the impact of consumption and the impact of our actions on the planet. Brands here have a role to play. And one way in which brands can help with sustainability is by encouraging people to recycle or people to upcycle their, their products, that is to give them a second life. And here in this process, everyone wins. And uh, I'll give you some examples. Lululemon, you can bring back your gently worn yoga pants and exchange them in return for a store credit. Uh, the same applies at Levi's. You can 
IKEA is starting to do this as well, whereby you can bring back some furniture, give them a second life, and uh, enjoy store credit. So everyone wins because, as a consumer, if you bring back your item, well, you feel good about less pollution, and also you walk out with a store credit. And the brand's going to win because what am I going to do with that store credit? Well, I'm going to spend it in store, and guess what? I'm going to have to pony up some more money anyway because in all likelihood, the store credit is not going to cover the entire cost of this new item I'm buying. And then the next customer who is going to buy this used or gently worn, gently used item is giving the product a second life. And in this process, is going to create his own story with the product, his or her own relationship with this product. And that's a process that feels very rewarding. I see more and more Gen Z and Gen Alpha thrifting things in sharp contrast with fast fashion. It's no longer cool to throw away your clothes every six months. It's more noble, in a way, to give a product a second life. And last but not least, of course, uh, it's better for the planet. Why? Because we end up producing less items mm. and enjoying those same items for longer. Well, I certainly see that from my own perspective. You know, brands here in the UK are increasing. If I look at tech brands like Vodafone, for example, which is a mm. mobile network operator in the UK, they are promoting refurbished handsets, mobile handsets is part of their core offering. And I think that's a really smart move. And, and if I look at my children so my one of my children who's 12 recently wanted to get a new mobile phone quite happy to go on to a company called back market and they all they sell is refurbished electrical items and you know the experience was superb it was as though it was as good as getting a new product i felt well I think that's a great example Andy because the truth is the consumer electronics industry I'm not pointing fingers at one brand in in particular, but the consumer electronics industry as a whole has encouraged either simulated shortage or programmed obsolescence or, or both, whereby you will buy products and interestingly, they stop working after 18 months and you don't quite know why. I have that going on with a printer um, and I will not mention the name of that brand, but we use this printer very seldom. And I cannot quite comprehend why it works about 20% of the time now, considering that we always used the original cartridges, I'm sorry. And again, we probably print about 300 pages, maybe 400 pages a year. So it's time to put an end to this. And as you suggested, buying devices that have been refurbished and by the way, that are sold at a lower price and that enables a larger audience to access the brand and its products. So that's how, um, how the brand wins again. That's another benefit for the brand to appeal to a wider audience and to bring people to the brand at an earlier stage before they can even afford this full price brand new product. Well, that's right. And, and the example of my son is that the, the refurbished product he bought was an, an iPhone 
iPhone 12 or 13, I forget exactly. He never could have afforded that new, but mm-hmm. now he's in that ecosystem. And what you we all know, once you get into the Apple ecosystem, you're pretty much absorbed in it. So he's probably going to be a lifelong Apple customer on the back of purchasing a refurbished phone. Absolutely. I mean, we know from our research at Ipsos that the iOS ecosystem, the Apple ecosystem is very, very sticky. Put it this way, just as you described it, Andy, when people step into the ecosystem, I mean, there is no going back, especially when they are uh, 13 to 18, right? Mm. The likelihood of them stepping out of the Apple ecosystem is in the low single digits. Is that right? Okay. And the research yeah. shows that. That that makes perfect yeah. sense. You know, I'm an Apple customer and I, I feel that way. Moving away to some other device and platform now, would it just seems alien. <laughs> Let's have a look at, there's just one other thing I wanted to reference actually, in, uh, in, and that's to do with uh, the, the rise of direct-to-consumer brands and how consumers seem much more comfortable having those direct relationships with the the manufacturer rather than going through a retailer. And, and, And that's obviously been a big trend, hasn't it? in the last sort of four or five years, maybe longer. And and what we're seeing, the damage to the high street is quite significant, isn't it? At least here in the UK, and I'm sure it'll be the same where you are in the States. Is yeah. that a good thing? Why, why, why are we more comfortable going direct to, to a brand? Look, um, with DTC, as with many things in life, uh, there is a moment of reckoning now. And here's what I mean. Initially, those brands look very compelling. They promise to cut the middleman. They establish a direct relationship with you. They use very elaborate algorithms to not only cater to your needs, but anticipate your needs. Um, the delivery is seamless. The supply chain is great. So by all means... There are many upsides to dealing directly with DTCs. However, those DTC brands are in the same boat as other brands in many ways. Uh, first off, at some point, you need to expand your range because it's very hard making money only selling blades or only selling glasses or beds or what have you. And also, at some point, you need reach. That exemplifies to me that nonsense we had when programmatic advertising started, right? So a few years ago, we said, oh, we're going to be able to target people very precisely. We're not going to waste any more money on advertising. We will target buyers only. Well, first off, it doesn't work that way. A lot of programmatic advertising is garbage, and it's very hard to drive people to your website. And perhaps most importantly, it's very hard to do so at scale. At some point, you benefit from a partnership with John Lewis, a partnership with Sainsbury's, a partnership with Waitrose, so that you can move volume. So what we see in North America, and I'm very confident the same thing's happening in the UK, you see those DTC brands placing their products in brick-and-mortar retail because they need shelf space, because they need visibility for the product, because they need volume and recency frequency purchase and expand their audiences. By the same token, the brick-and-mortar retailers 
need those products to drive footfall to their store, often from uh, with younger shoppers, if you will. So what I meant by back to the future is after a few years of craze around the DTC model and how we are going to make more money by cutting the middleman and all that, well, at the end of the day, guess what? The DTC firms, they need brick and mortar also for the discovery aspect of it. You discover yes. very few things online. Completely. You tend to discover things in store. And conversely, again, the traditional retailers need those brands to appeal to a wider audience themselves. I agree. And, and I think a good example of that is Gymshark. I don't know if you've come across Gymshark, the uh, sportswear company from the UK, all, all online sales. But recently, I would say the last 12 months has opened a flagship store right in the middle of Oxford Circus, which is the, the, the main shopping destination in in London, I suppose. And they've got that bricks and mortar presence now. And it's more of a kind of, it's obviously a shop, but it also has a gym and it's a more of an experience uh, rather than just a shopping destination. And I think that's quite important. Well, that's such a great example. So um, here's what I love that example. Number one, the very last thing we people, we consumers needed was yet another brand of sports apparel. Uh, how many brands do you already have on Oxford Street if you go between Oxford Circus and Piccadilly Circus, uh, right? So we didn't need as consumers yet another brand of sports apparel. Also, as you said, you could buy those items online. Now, the retail experience makes sense for so many reasons. There's the discovery, what we were talking about earlier. There's the council, the in-store experience mm. of someone guiding you, which is never going to happen online in the same uh, human fashion. And as you said, there are classes. So this retail experience now is not centered around the product. The product is, I'm going to go to the store for a specific class and I'm going to stretch. And on my way out, I'm going to discover the product and buy it. Completely. So it's a much more involving and candidly, I feel a much more valuable experience for the consumer than just going to a store, buying the product and walking out. I agree. And I think if you experience the product in that, that environment, you're much more likely to gain an emotional connection to the brand. You will remember that experience. I think that's important. I was having a conversation with a guy recently, maybe last week, who runs a DTC uh, watch brand, e-commerce brand. And he, he was talking about how it's so much harder now as a DTC brand to get in front of your customers. For him, the cost of acquisition has gone up from kind of $5 to $60 for each uh, customer. So for him to get that reach, to get that connection with his customers, he definitely has to find new ways in which to get in front of his customers. And I think that he will probably be moving into that environment where he's you know, putting his products out through the retail distribution channel as well. Yeah, what I see with most DTC brands, without naming names, is, well, number one, it's getting very expensive to get people to visit your website. And most importantly, how do you create recently frequency purchase, whereby if you have all the money in the world, or even if, if you have a few million dollars or a few million pounds, you're going to be able to attract people to your website once 
you then need a range of products that is going to prompt people to come back and back again, or else you will never make money. And that's where also the product range is a limitation for many of them. This sheer concept of being specialized into one product, one vertical, well, maybe it works when you sell razors, but in many categories it doesn't work because if you buy um, dish soap, for example, you do so every six months. I mean, I just bought from a DTC firm 300 pods. So when is the next? And I love those pods. I think they're well done. They're well priced. I like the product. I like the brand. The delivery was great. I can tell you so many good things about that brand. However, now that I have 300 pods, realistically, when is the next time I'm going to interact with that brand? Mm. Uh, probably not even this year. Mm. Yeah, it's a challenge, isn't it, when you're so refined in that service offer, a product offering? It is, because if the brand spent uh, 20, 30, 40 pounds to get me in, realistically, they're not making a dime right now on my purchase. So they have to wait another six months, nine months, hoping that I will come back to the website. And for me to go back to them organically, without going through some complex advertising route and buy from them direct so that they start making money. That's a yeah. big issue. That's a big challenge. It's a big ask, isn't it? And it when is you indeed. look at it that way, that what appears on the outset to be a, a low-cost, simple way to get to your customer actually is a very complex, challenging, and expensive way to, to build a distribution model. Yes, it is. And that's another myth we had that bringing people online will be so easy and so cheap and you can access everyone anytime and all that well it doesn't turn out to be that easy in the end <laughs> it certainly doesn't goodness i could keep going emmanuel because there's so many little bits in your book that i thought i'd love to talk to you about this that and the other but why don't you tell me is there anything in, in the, when you wrote this is there anything that you thought this is a message i really want to hit home is there a piece yeah. of this you always go back to and say, you know, this this part of chapter five is, you know, give me your take on that. Yeah, I mean, again, this book is optimistic. This book is empowering for the reader. And what feels important to me is when you read Assemblage, the Art and Science of Brand Transformation, you, uh, Ms. or Mr. Reader, you can do it too. So we... I start with Ogilvy and I end the book with David Ogilvy. And so by saying senior executives, so-called senior executives, don't have the monopoly of great ideas. You can be a junior contributor. You can be three months out of school, six months out of school, and make an even greater contribution than those so-called senior executives. That's because you're more attuned to culture and you likely better understand the world around you than people in the boardroom. So that's to say that by all means, you should read the book if you've been in the industry 20 years, because as you said, Andy, it's a treasure chest of ideas. And it's very important that we also empower everyone in the organization, no matter your level of experience, because what makes you stand out is not your job title or your gray hair. 
it is the quality of your ideas and your understanding of the world around you so that you can create great brands. That's interesting. Yeah. And and I think those ideas don't always come from experience and, and age and wisdom, although they can do, they can also come from energy, youthfulness, <laughs> new perspectives, or even seeking inspiration from important books and texts like Assemblage or others uh, available. So, so that's really interesting. And, I, and I'm so grateful that you uh, gave me the opportunity to talk to you about the book, because I think if anybody is looking at brand, brand strategy, brand transformation, or even if they've been in a, in a kind of brand custodian role for a while, there's stuff in here that I think will inspire them to, to take action, to think in a different way, take a new approach. Um, so thank you for that. If people would like to kind of reach out and say hello and, and pick your brains and some of the ideas, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Thank you, Andy. The book's available on Amazon. And again, the name of the book is Assemblage, the Art and Science of Brand Transformation. People can also connect with me on LinkedIn. And again, my name is Emmanuel Props with two M's. And I will be happy to connect with you and address any additional questions you may have on LinkedIn. Fantastic. And I'll put links to the book and to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes. What a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. And I hope that we can connect when you've got your third and fourth and fifth books, which I'm sure are in the pipeline, are they? In <laughs> The third one. I don't know about the fourth. <laughs> but thank you, Andy. I will uh, indeed. It's always a pleasure talking with you, connecting with your community. And I will uh, we'll gladly come back on the show if I may. <laughs> you certainly may I look forward to the next one and again thanks Emmanuel uh, speak soon thank you everyone <laughs>